Hi, welcome to the New Story Church podcast. We hope that this week's message encourages you and brings you closer to Jesus. But today's title of this message in the first part of our series, the B-I-B-L-E, if you're taking notes, write this down. The title of today's message is Misreading the Bible. And we are going to get to more of this concept in just a moment of what it looks like when we misread the Bible or what are ways that people have misread the Bible before, some misreadings that we've been opened up to. But first, I want to ask this question. Who here remembers their first Bible? You remember the first Bible you ever received? Come on, put your hands up in the air. Or maybe you don't even remember your first Bible, but you remember the first Bible you saw, or you remember the first Bible that you ever received that you were excited about. Anybody remember this? When I, when I was young, there were Bibles all over my house because I grew up in a Christian home. My mom had a couple of Bibles. My dad had a Bible. We had, we had a lot. We had children's Bibles, but I remember the very first Bible that I received that I was excited about. It was a purple Bible man Bible. Now, do any of you here, any of you raised in a Christian home, you know who Bible man is? Some of you are saying, who is Bible Man? He's like a Christian superhero, okay? And Bible Man would wear this purple outfit, and he'd put on the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, and he would go and he would fight evil people, people like the Fibbler or, or, or the Gossip Queen or the Prince of Pride. And, and Bible Man had a lightsaber as well, so it was like superheroes and Star Wars, and he'd be fighting like the Prince of Pride and and he'd be you know swinging his sword but then he'd start quoting scripture and then and then the villain would start to melt away and, and fall away as he would defeat these sinful villains but my first one of my first bibles that I remember being excited about it wasn't my first bible but it was this purple bible man bible and in the bible between different books there were bible man comics that I could look at there were excerpts in certain passages where bible man would explain some things for those of you who don't know who bible man is maybe if you were from the if you grew up in the 80s you remember the show is enough with Willie Ames. Willie Ames played Bible Man. He was the man. You know, Bible Man would just, he would take people out. He would, he would fight sin. And I remember being so excited about my Bible Man Bible. And then not long after that, I received another Bible that I really, really liked. It had a metal cover on the front and the back and a magnet would hold the, would hold the covers together. I was like, this is a cool Bible as well. So some of you might remember your first Bible or a Bible that you were excited about. Some of you probably remember the first time you attempted to read the Bible. And, and, and maybe some of you, you've picked up the Bible, you've started reading, and you've never stopped. You read the Bible frequently. Maybe you read it a few times a week. Maybe you read it almost every single day. And you have this great relationship with the Bible, and you really, really enjoy reading it. But then some of us, we don't like reading as much. And so you've tried reading, you've tried the audible Bible, you've tried different approaches to the Bible. And sometimes it feels a little bit difficult or a little disconnected. Or maybe you've said before, I'm going to do the Bible through a year thing, or I'm going to try to read my Bible cover to cover. And it's pretty, you know, you're tracking, you're going with it, and then you get to Leviticus. You're like, I don't don't know if I can keep reading. I don't know if I can make it through. And you kind of stop, and then you say, I'm going to do this again. And you try again. You say, this time I'm going to beat Leviticus. And you try again. And you don't. 
and you know, I, what should I do? And I really enjoyed reading John. I really enjoyed reading James, but Leviticus is tough to get through. And then finally you say, I'm going to make it through Leviticus this time. And you go through and you make it through Leviticus. Congratulations, you did it. But then you get to First Chronicles. It's like, so-and-so is the father of so-and-so is the father of so-and-so. And you're like, why am I reading? What is happening? What is all of this? And sometimes reading the Bible can be a bit challenging. And in today's world, some of the things that we find in the Bible, we don't, does this resonate? What does this look like? What does this mean? And, and the Bible has become one of those things within the church, within the Christian faith. It's, it's kind of strange, but it's almost become controversial today. And it's kind of a weird thing to think about because the Bible is the source by which we learn about Jesus and connect to Jesus and hear about the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, we really value the Bible here at New Story Church. We talk about something from the Bible every single Sunday. And so we want to move towards a clear understanding of what exactly do we have with the Bible. So just to be clear with this series, I'm not really going to be doing an apologetics approach, which would mean like defending the Bible and the credibility of it. I might do that at another point in time because there's a lot of cool stuff there. But more, more so what I want to focus on this, in this series is, well, we have the Bible. We talk about the Bible. What is the Bible? The B-I-B-L-E, we say that's the book for me. So what, what is it? <laughs> What is it? What do we have here? So this quote is not going to be on the screen, but this is from uh, Dr. Megan Good from her book, Unwrapping the Bible. She said, when we come to the Bible, we look at God through the eyes of ages and cultures that don't share our own presumptions and preoccupations. When we interpret, we enter into conversation, not just with biblical writers, but with thousands of years of readers who have their own experiences, concerns, and perspectives. I just think that's a helpful view for us to understand here. When we, when we enter into the Bible, there, there was a different culture in which it was written, but also through the past 2,000 years of church history, there have been different denominations and traditions and views and interpretations of various passages. So this can be a little bit complex. It can be intimidating. So before I jump into ways in which we have misread the Bible or misreadings of the Bible, I want to, in just the next few minutes here, give you a general overview of a way that I feel is helpful for us to see the Bible. I want to make the contention that above all else, the Bible is a story. It's a true story, it's a living story, it's an active story, and it's a story that we as the church, as human beings who follow Christ, have been invited to participate and to live in. And, and here's, here's how I know that it's a story. Genesis chapter 1, the first book of the Bible, starts this way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's how you would start a story. This is like the blue text at the beginning of the Star Wars film before the yellow text. The blue text, it says, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. It's setting you up for a story. Now, we do believe that the book of Job was actually probably the first book that was ever written, but Genesis is the one that goes all the way back to the beginning. It goes to the beginning of the story, and Genesis begins to unravel and unpack for us the story that God is desiring to tell through these 66 books that we have compiled into one book called the Bible. But within this story, there are actually two beginnings. There's another beginning that happens, and this happens sometime later in John chapter 1 when John writes this in John 1 verses 1 through 3. He said, in the beginning was the Word. This is a reference to Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So we have two different beginnings. John almost uh, parallels or parrots Genesis of uh, there was this beginning and now there's a new beginning. And in the beginning, it's referencing Jesus who was with the Father in creation and everything came into existence through Jesus. And so we have this story of two beginnings. And so, so you can write this down. The Bible contains a story that we have been invited to participate in. It's a living story. I'm going to continue to unravel this for us here. So as we look at this story that has two beginnings, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, I want to suggest to you and submit to you a framework of three different sections of this story or three different acts within the story. And so act one within this story that we find in the Bible, I want to label this creation if you're taking notes. Act one is creation. And this occurs in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. This is the first act where God in the beginning creates all things. He creates everything. This is act 1. And in this part of act 1 in Genesis 1 and 2, uh, Genesis chapter 1 says this. You'll see it up on the screen where it says, God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good. Go read Genesis 1 and 2. It actually has two accounts of the creation narrative. But what we want to glean from this story in creation is that it was all good. A good God created a good creation and God rested and dwelt within this creation and he created humans in this creation to be his image bearers and to oversee the creation, to care for the creation. So this is act one, creation, which then takes us to act two. Now, if there are any pastors or scholars in here or watching online or even more Bible nerds, I'm going to be upfront with you. My act two is a bit of an oversimplification, okay? It's a bit of an oversimplification, but I just, wanna, I just want us to have a general overview of the story that the Bible is telling. So act two, we are going to label fallen creation, Act two is fallen creation. And we see this story unraveling from Genesis 3 to Malachi. What happens is is that God created everything. It was good. It was perfect. And then Adam and Eve decided to, you know, eat from the tree that they weren't supposed to eat from. And so sin entered the world. There's this thing called the fall. And now fallen creation exists. And throughout this story of fallen creation, God chooses a people for himself. He has makes a covenant with this people called Israel. He's like, hey, you're going to be my representatives. You're going to be a light to the world. It's all going to be great. And Israel, they just, they don't make things very easy here. There's a lot of up and down and back and forth. There's even a part of the story where they say, hey God, you know, we know you're our king, but you're just not quite cutting it. We want a human king. Could you imagine telling God, you're not quite cutting it right now as the leader and the king of this whole nation. We think a human would do a better job. Like, can you, but this, this is a story of back and forth and disconnecting with God and misrepresenting God. There's a lot that goes on in this, in this section of fallen creation. In fact, if you wanted to put a little slash next to fallen creation, you could maybe put wrestling with creation. There's this constant wrestling where where God's people are wrestling with God. God, we don't like this. God, we don't like that. God, we're going to walk away from this. And there's this constant misrepresentation and all of these different pieces that are happening in this part of the story. 
In fact, it's almost as if the story of Jacob, who is named Israel, is, is almost like in, in the book of Genesis, where Jacob is constantly wrestling and up and down and back and forth. It's almost like that's a micro story of the macro story that unravels throughout the Old Testament. And really what we're seeing a lot of in this fallen creation is our need for Jesus, our need for a savior, our need for a kingdom that is beyond anyone that we as humans could ever build or understand. And that brings us to act three of the story. Well, first, let me, let me go this uh, Romans chapter five, verse 12. Paul says this about the fallen creation. He says, therefore, just as through one man, sin entered into the world and death through sin, And so death spread to all men because all sinned. So we see the consequences of sin unraveling in this fallen creation. There's this separation between God and his creation. God keeps drawing close. God keeps pursuing. And humans keep finding a way to do their own thing up and down, back and forth. And if you want a a really solid summary of a lot of the context and the stories in the Old Testament, I would highly recommend some of the sermons in the book of Acts, specifically Stephen's message in Acts chapter 7. He really outlines a lot there. So that's Act 2, Fallen Creation. Act 3, which we move to then, is new creation. New creation. So we have creation, fallen creation, and then act three, we have new creation. And this begins when Jesus steps onto the pages of human history. When Jesus comes and and demonstrates what it means to, to, to be truly human. When Jesus establishes his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. There's a new creation that's unraveling where people can have new life, where there can be a new hope. And then ultimately in Jesus, he sends his Holy Spirit so that we can be equipped and living in his kingdom vision. So there's this new creation. And in fact, you could segment up this one a little bit as well. We could say the the movement of Jesus, the, the gospel story of Jesus, his death and resurrection, and then the movement of the church in the book of Acts, which we now exist in now, we exist in the movement of the church. You could say that this is, we are now in the beginning of new creation. And then when Jesus returns one day, as we read about in Revelation, that will be the fullness of new creation. But it's not, oh, new creation will one day be here. No, God is already on the move with his new creation work in the resurrection of Jesus. God is already on the move bringing about new life and new creation. And he did that through the resurrection and he is now doing that through his church. And Mark records this as the first words out of the mouth of Jesus in Mark chapter one. Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. In Luke 17, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is in your midst. In Matthew chapter six, he prays, he teaches us to pray that the kingdom of God would be done on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of God, the future of God, the reign of God has invaded our present space. And so we now live as citizens of another kingdom. We are connected to eternity and through, through walking in the way of Jesus, through demonstrating the way of Jesus, through looking like Jesus and not living in fallen creation, which would be sin, which would be in rebellion to what Christ has for us, and then living in new creation. We are a part of living in eternity and becoming who it is that God has designed us to be. We are a part of the new creation story in Christ. So I would summarize it this way. The Bible contains the story of God renewing and rescuing his creation. The Bible contains the story of God renewing and rescuing his creation. 
You could actually really simply put it this way. The Bible contains the story of Jesus. The Bible contains the story of our need for Jesus in the fallen creation and then the way that Jesus has now made possible in new creation, the reality that we've been invited to live into so that we don't have to live enslaved to the fall, but we can live in the new life and in the freedom and in the abundant life that Christ has for us. But the Bible contains a story of God renewing and rescuing his creation. There we go. The story of the Bible in maybe, what, 15 minutes? So... It's okay, right? It's all right. <laughs> I can take a breath now. We made it through. Are we, are we good to move forward to ways in which we misread the Bible? Are we good? Can we do it? Okay, we're good. Can I just get a head shake? I know I just covered a lot of ground there. That probably should have just been part one. I probably should have just taken a deep breath and made that part one, but I said, we're going to try to fit in as much as we possibly can today. So it is time to now talk about ways in which we misread the Bible. And the first way is the Magic 8-Ball Bible. That's what I'm going to call this one, the Magic 8-Ball Bible. For those of you who follow me on Instagram, you probably noticed that I asked for some uh, uh, props a couple weeks ago for this series. I asked for a Magic 8-Ball. Only one person responded to me for any props. It's like, nobody could help me out. And then I could not justify spending my own money on props. And then I couldn't justify going to our board and saying, hey, can I have some money to spend on props for a new story? So we have no props this morning because nobody helped me out. But that's okay. You can imagine a Magic 8-Ball within your head. A Magic 8-Ball. Did anybody have a Magic 8-Ball growing up? As, yeah, okay, yeah. Well, you, you do. You'd ask the Magic 8-Ball a question and you would shake the ball and then the ball would give you an answer. Should I go on this date? Oh yeah, sure. That seems like a good idea. I'm going to listen to this stupid thing. But anyways, you know, sh should I take this job? Shake the, oh yeah, that's, this definitely knows what I'm supposed to be doing. I'll just listen to that. Sometimes we take the Bible and we minimize it and treat it almost as if it's just a magic eight ball. Uh, let me be abundantly clear here. There are times when we are reading the Bible and the scriptures jump off the pages in such a powerful and unique way and speak to our situation in such a powerful and unique way that we know that it is God speaking to us and God has a unique way of using the scriptures to do that. But when that's the only way we read the scripture, God, what do you want me to do here? God, what school do you want me to go to? God, should I go on this date? God, should I do this? And then we just open the Bible and hope that he'll randomly give us a verse. What we start to do is we start to take the focus of the story of the Bible off of God and we just make it about ourselves. And, and we start to make it just, the Bible just becomes a tool for my own self-fulfillment. And once again, I'm, let me be clear, there are times when the Bible speaks very specifically to the situations of life that we are in. But it's not just for that. It's not just a means for our own personal end. It's not just a, oh, so I can, you know, I can get whatever I want, whenever I want. And because what happens when we reduce the Bible to just a magic eight ball Bible, what we'll do is we'll start to pull scriptures out of context just to fit our own narratives, just to fit our own story, just to fit our own desires of whatever it is that we want. Here's what I would say to combat the magic eight ball Bible. The story of the Bible is more concerned with who you are becoming the story of the Bible is more concerned with who you are becoming. Not, should I, should I go to this school or should I go to that school? Should I do this? Or should, is it, the Bi story of the Bible is more concerned about whatever school you choose to go to if you're, or whatever job you choose to take. In that space, are you going to be wrapped up in the kingdom new creation of Jesus and reflect who Christ is in that space? Are you willing to take up your cross whatever space you find yourself in? 
Are you willing to look for where God is moving wherever it is you choose to go and saying, I am going to lay down my old life and embrace the new and become who it is that Christ has called me and designed me to be in this space. And that means letting go of personal preference at times, personal ambitions, and saying, I'm going to be wrapped up in the ambitions of God for this world, not my own. Let's not just reduce it to a magic eight ball. Now, just a warning before I move to the next one. Some of these will be maybe a little bit more in your face than others. Some of these will maybe be a little bit more difficult to hear than others. And I'm going to do my best to not get too worked up when talking about some of these. <laughs> I'm going to try to keep it, keep it down. But some of these misreadings have really caused some harm for some people. And with each of these categories, just like the Magic 8-Ball Bible, there are moments where it's like, okay, yeah, God is speaking, God is doing that, God is doing that. But when we reduce the Bible and the story of the Bible of God renewing and rescuing his creation from this fall, when we, when we start to take it off that and just put it on these, these smaller categories, what happens is we are reducing what God wants to do through all of his people. And oftentimes we're just looking out for personal preference. So here, here's the next way that I would suggest that we struggle in reading the Bible is we reduce the Bible and we call it what I call the political Bible. The political Bible. And this is the one, and you can put a slash next to this one, maybe put the power-hungry Bible. And this is when we start to just leverage and use the Bible for our own political and personal preferences to have power or to have influence in some way. Now, are there times when the Bible speaks to different political issues? Most definitely. And would I ever argue that we as Christians should not be involved in political discourse? No, I would never say that we should not be involved in that. But there are so many people who I've, I've, I've seen, whether in social media or been in conversations with, and they are so much more concerned with kingdoms of this world, political kingdoms, than they are with God's kingdom. And that constantly gets in the way. And when this goes bad, it goes really bad. When this gets corrupted, it becomes really corrupted. When humans start leveraging the Bible for political purposes or to gain power over other people, it gets bad. This next quote is a little bit in your face. It won't be on the screen, but I just want us to see how bad this can go when we choose to use the Bible as a political tool. This is from Rachel Held Evans. She says, this is going throughout history. She said, slave traders justified the exploitation of black people claiming the curse on Noah's son Ham rendered all Africans subhuman. Many Puritans and pioneers appealed to the stories of Joshua's conquest of Canaan to support attacks on indigenous populations. More recently, I've heard Christians shrug off sins committed by American politicians because King David assaulted women too, and this happens on both sides. Anytime the Bible is used to justify the oppression and exploitation of others, we have strayed far from the God who brought the people of Israel out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, the God who set his people free. We take the focus off of that. And this is going to be a, a little bit, but this happens on both sides, okay? I'm talking strictly to those of us in the United States of America. If anyone's watching somewhere else, um, things get a little crazy here sometimes. But, uh, th th this happens on both sides. We have those on, on more so the right side who will take promises that were intended for the nation of Israel and twist them and use them and act as if these are now for the United States. No, God's people now exist in all countries and all places. 
And so don't, don't twist, oh, this, no, that was for the nation of Israel. It's not, we're not some, we're not more special than other nations. Yes, we have a lot of liberties and freedoms and wonderful things here. I don't want to, but, but we're not some special, no, God's church exists all over the world. We have those on the right who, who will twist scripture to do that and say, oh, it's for Israel. This is now for, no, that's not how that works. But this also happens, I, I've seen this happen on the left as well, where there's this concept of almost virtue signaling and pr- taking s- different verses that, oh, this fits the agenda that I like right now. So I'm going to post this verse, but you know, I don't like the rest of the Bible. And there's this almost this feeling of picking and choosing whatever works, picking and choosing whatever fits certain narratives. And it's a, bit of, it's a virtue signaling of, I'm just going to pick this one because I like this one. And a lot of times what I see in this group is they want the reality of the kingdom, but without a king. They want the reality of, oh, the kingdom of God, but they don't want to submit to a king. And it's easier to just uh, it's pick and choose whatever works. And this virtue signaling of making people feel bad if, if you know, they don't get on the way I see things. And this happens on both sides and both sides will, oh, we're being objective. We're being this, we're being that. And once again, I think that we should be involved in healthy discussions with one another. But when we start twisting the scriptures for political power or just power in general to elevate ourselves and put others down, that is a, that is a twisted way of using the scriptures. And that's not how the Bible was intended to be used. When Jesus was approached about the politics of his day, he was under Caesar, which was just not a good scenario. And some people tried to trap him and they said, hey, Jesus, see this coin that bears the image of Caesar? What should we do with that? Should we pay taxes to Caesar? Should we pay taxes to a horrible, awful Caesar? And look at what Jesus says to them. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. You know what Jesus is saying here? Give to Caesar that which bears his image, the coin but you better give to God that which bears his image, your very self. And in giving ourselves to God, we are choosing to be wrapped up into his story and serve others and look out for others and care for others and not just self. Another way that we misread the Bible, this one I won't spend as much time on. I call this the rule book Bible. The rule book Bible. (laughs) This is where the, the Bible is just about all, all about following the rules. There's all the rules. You've got to follow the rules. You've got to stay in line with the rules. And I addressed this a lot in the last series with the bounded mindset. Now, once again, are there, are there some like rules? When you read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, it's pretty clear. Jesus lays out some ways that we as believers are supposed to act and supposed to, and supposed to live. It's pretty clear. But I think that what happens with this approach is we just get things backwards. And what happens with this approach is, oh, follow all of the rules and then you will know Jesus. When I would suggest to you that what we should do is know and follow Jesus and he will transform our lives into a life that looks like his. That the change comes from a relational transformation. The the change comes from reading and knowing the story and being wrapped up in the story. Not just, oh, I got to know all this and if I do it, then I'll know him. That's a backwards way of doing things. That's almost a legalistic way of doing things. But instead, it's know Jesus and then he will transform you. He will change you. Jesus looked at all of his disciples and said, follow me. And then they were transformed after those years of following him and knowing him. He didn't come to them and say, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. And then, no, he said, follow me. Now, some of them, there were some things at first. He's like, hey, you got to let go of this. You got to let go of that. So he, he will interrupt your life. But it's follow me and he will transform you. Another way that we misread the Bible. 
This one is called the science textbook slash the encyclopedia slash the know-it-all Bible. The science textbook encyclopedia know-it-all Bible. Are there times where the scriptures could speak to things and conversations that are happening within the scientific community? Most definitely. Now, I am not a scientist. I'm not somewhat of a scientist like Mr. Norman Osborne. Funny you follow me. Cheesy, stupid jokes. There we go. But anyways, so I am not a scientist. I am not an encyclopedia. And sometimes I can be a bit of a know-it-all, but I try not to be one. But sometimes we, we take the Bible and act as if it, it should just address every little living thing that's ever occurred. And there are times when, yes, science and the Bible would collide with one another. If I were talking with a scientist who does not believe in God, then yes, there's going to be a bit of a collision there because we believe in the beginning God created all things. It doesn't have to be a hostile collision, though. It doesn't have to be an argument. We don't have to be nasty about it. We could be in humility like Christ would call us to be. There would be times where maybe if the scientist said, hey, I don't believe in supernatural events, then yes, we would have a disagreement with one another because we believe that a resurrection happened. We believe that a guy came back from the dead. Okay, there'd be some disagreements. But sometimes I've noticed that we will find ourselves getting into arguments that we don't need to be getting into. I know that what I'm about to say here might be controversial and it might bother some people just a little bit, but please, after it bothers you, please think about it. I don't think that Genesis 1 and 2 was given to us to tell us how old the earth is. I don't think Genesis 1 and 2 is concerned with that. I was reading something this past week where uh, I I wish I would remember the reference, but the author said something to the effect of, um, if you deny that the earth is 6,000 years old, then you should also be denying the resurrection. He put those things on par with one another. I, I... I just don't think that that's why we have Genesis 1 and 2. You you are welcome to believe the earth is 6,000 years old. You are welcome to believe that the earth is millions of years old. There are some different theories out there, the gap theory within the scriptures, different things we could look at, but that's not why Genesis 1 and 2 was given to us. Genesis 1 and 2, I'm going to reframe this for you in just a moment through the acts that we were looking at, but Genesis 1 and 2 does want us to know that God created all things. Genesis 1 and 2 wants us to know that God created all things in six days, but Genesis 1 and 2 is not concerned about how old the earth is. Now, yes, the Bible only has a certain amount of human history within it or a certain amount of history in general within it, but that that's not really why the text is there. We also have the Encyclopedia Bible where you know we try to twist Scripture sometimes to get it to address every little thing that's ever happened in human history. And we say things like, well, all truth is God's truth. Yes, I would believe that and I would affirm that statement. But there are some things that are true that the Bible just doesn't speak to. For example, the Los Angeles Rams won the Super Bowl last year. That's a true statement. The Bible doesn't talk about that. So we don't need to twist the scripture to get it to say, well, you know, if you go to, uh, to the fifth book of the Bible and you count the, the 10th letter in, in, the, in the fifth chapter of the fifth book, and then you do that for every book, it spells, also, it spells out Los Angeles Rams 2022. Like we, we, don't, we, we don't need to do stuff like that. <sighs> We don't need to do stuff like that. And when we do this, the science book Bible, the encyclopedia Bible, the know-it-all Bible, people start to realize, I don't know if that's what the Bible is about. And it feels almost like people are twisting things just so, oh, we know everything. We have all, it's like, I, the older I get, the re- more I realize I don't have all of the answers. We just don't always have all the answers. That's why we have to seek him above all else. And so I, let me make this statement. This is a strong statement. But if you try to twist the Bible to control others, they will find out and then they will walk away. 
And this is true for all of these categories. If you try to twist the Bible to control others, just to keep people in and keep people in, people will find out our goal should be to have integrity when reading the scriptures and to allow ourselves to be wrapped up in the story of God. Now, Maybe some of you before, because uh, I've had a number of conversations like this, the book of Genesis has felt a bit, uh, you don't know what to do with it now. Because you're like, I don't, I don't know what to do because of some things that people have said, and I don't know what to do. Let me reframe Genesis for you within the three-act play or story that we set up. Act number one, creation. Act one, creation. Look at this verse in act one. By the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. That word rested meant that he was dwelling in, he was residing in his creation. It doesn't mean, oh God, God was so exhausted, he needed to take a nap. No, it means that he was resting in his creation. What we have unraveling in Genesis 1 and 2 is actually something brilliant that was speaking to the ancient world. See, in the ancient world, all these other religions, they were worshiping cows or the sun or all of these different things. And God says, no, 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 no. All these things that all these other religions are worshiping, I created them. And then what would happen is that they would, these other ancient religions, they would set up these temples and maybe put an image of the cow or the sun or whatever in their temple and say, this is what we worship. And then God says, no, 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 no. The things that bear my image are human beings. That's the being that bears my image. And I rest with them. I dwell with them. And in the ancient world, it was believed that gods rested in their temples in these little isolated places. And God says, no, your gods, yeah, yeah let them rest in their temples. I rest in creation because I created all of it. Genesis 1 and 2 is a message to the ancient world that God is a creator of all things and God desires to dwell in and rest in and be close to his creation. That's what's happening in Genesis 1 and 2. Amen. And then this keeps unraveling because after the fall, what happens? God pursues Adam and Eve. God pursues Abraham. Then God pursues Moses in the book of Exodus. And in, and in Act 2, fallen creation, look at this in Exodus 40, verse 34. For throughout all their journeys, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and there was fire in it by night in the sight of all of the house of Israel. So what did God do? God then and drew close to his creation and he rested and he dwelt within the people that he had called out Israel in the tabernacle. God's desiring to draw close to creation. He did it in creation. He does it in fallen creation. Then they're like, oh God, well, you know, we're not on with this. We want a king. And then they build a temple for him and it's just not working out. So then what happens in new creation? Go to John chapter one, the story of the new beginning. And in new creation, you'll see this up on the screen, John chapter 1, 14. And the word that is Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. That word for dwelt, it means tabernacled. He came and rested and lived among us. Heaven is now collided with earth and we saw his glory. Glory is the only begotten from the father, full of grace and truth. And then what happens? Jesus ascends into heaven. Then he sends his Holy Spirit. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3 and 1 Corinthians 6 that our body is now a temple of the Holy Spirit. All throughout the scriptures, when we see the scriptures in this way, within this story, what do we see? That God desires to rest and to dwell and to live within his creation. He did it in creation. He then pursued the fallen creation. He then, then Jesus came as the tabernacle and then he sent, he sent his spirit within us. This is the story of the scriptures that brings it all together, that God desires to 
live in and to dwell in and to rest with and to know and to be intimate and to be relational with and to be with his creation. That's the story that's unraveling here. And it starts all the way back at Genesis where God is telling this story of wanting to be present with his creation and to live with his creation and then ultimately rescue and renew it. This is the picture and revelation ends up being that it's not, it's not about us just getting snatched out. No, heaven comes down to earth. God is constantly coming and coming down to his people and, and renewing and restoring because God will pursue and he desires to be present and rest and rescue his creation. That's the story that's unraveling here. One last category here. I'm calling this one the That's So Raven Bible. (laughs) For those of you who are in your 20s like me, I can say that for one more year. I can say one more year. You know what I'm talking about. Some of you are too young to know what I'm talking about. Some of you are too old to care what I'm talking about. (laughs) That's So Raven was a show on Disney Channel years ago. And what did she have the ability to do? to see into the future. And she would get these visions and she would see into the future. And then she would try to do things to prevent whatever it was that she saw from happening. But then it would always turn out that her plan to prevent it from happening actually made the thing happen. It was a big disaster. But she should see into the future. Yes, the Bible tells us things about the future. Yes, the Bible has prophecies that lets us know about Christ returning one day. But there are some who become so fixated on the, the future, the future, the future. We gotta, we gotta let people know. We gotta let people know about the future. That we miss out on who we are supposed to be right now. This is very similar to the Magic 8-Ball Bible. And there are people who are constantly predicting the return of Jesus. I, people are never going to stop predicting the return of Jesus. I'm not gonna fight that battle, but I do wanna say this. Can we stop following those people? <laughs> and just say, hey, we don't know. We don't know. And we get so wrapped up in talking about the future, the future, the future, the future that we miss out on what we're supposed to be doing right here, right now, to the kingdom work that God has called us to in this moment, to build a better future in his kingdom. I would say it this way. Instead of being obsessed with the end of the story, let's be faithful to the piece of the story that we are called to live in. Instead of being obsessed with the end of the story, let's be faithful to the piece of the story that we have been called to live in. Let's be faithful to who Christ has called us to be now to be the kingdom-minded people he's called us to be. So back to the new beginning in John chapter one. John tells this story of the new beginning that's happened in Christ, of the new creation. And towards the end of John chapter one, Philip and Nathaniel start to have this conversation. They end up being some of Jesus's followers. And Philip's like, you gotta see this guy. And Nathaniel says, can anything good come from Nazareth? A kind of snarky remark. My middle name is Nathaniel, by the way. I was named after him. And so I thought maybe we share some tendencies with one another, you know, being a little bit, a little bit smart. But John chapter one ends with Philip and Nathaniel discovering Jesus. Philip goes to tell Nathaniel, hey man, you gotta see this guy. And Nathaniel, anything good? But I wanna read this to you from John chapter one, verses 48 through 51. Nathaniel said to him, because he sees Jesus and Jesus recognizes him but yet they haven't met yet in Nathanael's mind. And Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. 
Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. This story here in John 1, as John wraps up his new beginning in John chapter 1, this is the act of new creation. This is the story, the true, the real, the living story that we have been invited to live in. The story where beauty comes from unlikely places like Nazareth. The story where Jesus sees you before you even know that he was looking for you. You are seen. You are loved. The story where we will experience even greater things than what we have already experienced. Amen? Open up your Bible. Start reading. We are a part of a story of new creation. As Jesus said to to Nathaniel, we will see the heavens opened. We will experience the kingdom. We will live into eternity. Something is happening. Let's live in this story of new creation.